Please open your Bibles to Colossians, chapter 4. One of my favorite people, or one of the favorite people in my entire life, is Mayan Audrey. She was one of a kind, precious, precious woman. God brought her into my life when I was a teenager. She's my dad's big sister, but I didn't have a relationship with her as a child. She came into our family again, just relationally, when God had given to us as a McFarland family, really a spiritual awakening in Christ. And, and she had been through so much, and God had miraculously redeemed her, and she was just gushing Jesus to her family. And it was sweet to be brought into relationship with her. I went down one summer and spent a month with her, just living with her and my Uncle Hugh, watching them uh, model uh, a couple in their older years that would pursue Christ together. I remember watching them uh, in the mornings read scripture and just praying and seeing my Uncle Hugh with his hands raised just in prayer and submission to Christ. And it impacted me as a 14 and a 15-year-old. And over the years, I loved going back down to Florida and just being with them. And as God began to stir uh, me for Africa and then us as a family and launch us, they were some of our biggest prayer warriors and supporters and just lovers of these McFarlands. Amazing vessels of God's grace to us. And I could tell you a thousand stories. She went to be with the Lord just a couple of years ago. And I was amazed at the people I got to interact with that had been touched by her. In fact, it, it was almost flabbergasting, like, I mean, t- like shocking at how many people were convinced that they were her favorite person. <laughs> yes, Laura Beth was like, it was me. <laughs> no, it was me. It was me. I mean, people that you were like, who are you? And they, I mean, like, I, I mean, obviously I was her favorite person. I mean, they, because to, when you were with her, You were loved by her. And it was genuine. She genuinely loved people. And she was so good at just loving whoever she was around. So that really, you really felt like in that moment, you were her favorite person because in that moment, you were. If you were with her in that moment, you were her favorite person. Amazing. When I... Think back over the years of my life. I've interacted with people from many ethnicities and culture and religious backgrounds, many different professions from dignitaries, government officials, to farmers, to to school teachers, to you name it. Children, so many, so many kids, so many kids. On planes and trains and automobiles and, and buses, crazy buses. At restaurants and grocery stores and markets and movie theaters and offices and government offices, everywhere else a person might find themselves at any moment in the day. And it's quite amazing to just reflect on the mass of people that we come into contact with over a day, a week, a month, a year, a decade, a lifetime. Thousands. Thousands 
Some people I've interacted with, some I've ignored. Some I've enjoyed and some I have not enjoyed. Some I've wanted to get away from very, very quickly. Some I've recognized as God appointments. Because only God could set up this situation and and this conversation, this meeting, and where I walk away just going, Lord, thank you. This was so obviously from your hand. And yet, if we truly believe that God is sovereign over all things, that he has ordained all things, governs all things, then truly all of our interactions with people, all people, that we run into throughout our day. They're alive, you're alive, and you're in a place at the same time, truly by the will of God, then truly all of our situations and interactions are God appointments. To one degree or another, he has arranged, he has ordained. But if I'm honest, as I think back over the years, I have found myself oblivious to this reality or just happy to go about my business or just simply responding to people according to my mood or perhaps with a polite kindness because I do enjoy kidding with people, but sometimes that gets me in trouble. Sometimes I embarrass my children. And yet those that I do seek to engage with intentionally to have God-oriented conversations Often after those moments, I find myself wondering, did I say the wrong thing? I second guess myself a hundred times over. Those that I've ignored, I wonder, did I, did I miss an opportunity? And perhaps you can relate to some of this. Maybe a piece. Or maybe all of it. I think the reality is that all of us in this room, all Christians in the world has faced these realities especially the battle with engaging people and wondering, what do I say? How do I respond to this situation, to this statement? Did I just miss a chance? Did I say the wrong thing? Did I push this person farther away from God? Am I just a complete failure (laughs) at engaging people for Christ? How do we live in this world and engage people? Whether you're an extrovert or an introvert, whether you are happy or sad, whether you are frustrated or joyful or maybe even angry and offended, how do I engage people in a Christ-honoring way? Our passage this morning confronts these issues and speaks into really all situations in their complexity and simplicity. And the diversity of all that we face, because no matter who we are, no matter where you are, whether you're a pastor or whether you work from home, whether you're a barista, whether you are retired or you're a kid attending school, no matter where you are in life, God has placed each of us where we are and daily surrounds us with people. Daily. According to his purposes. And according to his work in the world and in our own lives. So as we come into God's word together, let's just pray that his word would stir us afresh in these things as we engage people. Father, as we look at your word together, I pray that 
you would meet each one of us in our need. You know our unique situations. You know, Lord, what our fears are. You know uh, the, the battles and the, and the struggles that go on in our hearts and minds. And yet, all of us want to confess Christ. We want to confess Christ here together. We want to confess Christ in, a, in the world that we live in. And we pray, Lord, that you would refresh us through your word and stir us and equip us for every good thing that would be pleasing in your sight, for the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. Over the past few weeks, we've been looking at how to live the incomparable Christ in our day-to-day lives. We've walked through Colossians chapter 3. We have seen this playing out in the way that we function in our relationships in the home, right? And, and we've seen really in that both uh, God, who, who God is, reflected in those relationships, God as our father, God as our husband, God as our master. Last week, Pastor Peter called us to the response of prayer, that we would be a praying people, praying with thanksgiving in relationship with this good and gracious and sovereign God that he would open doors of ministry for Christ to be declared, for Christ to be made known, even in the midst of hard circumstances, that the message would be made clear. Notice that Paul says there that it would be made clear, which is how I ought to speak at the end of verse 4, there in Colossians 4. He says that it would be how he ought to speak. I think it's an interesting phrase because there's a tension between how we ought to speak and often how we do speak. What we should declare and what we do declare. And we all need prayer for that. We all want to be praying for one another that Christ would give us opportunities to make the mystery of Christ clear to others. And all this is expounding on what Paul wrote in chapter 3, verse 17, that whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so Paul is going to take this this word and this deed lived out in relationships and, and lived out as we pray and watch God work among us and watch God work through, through his church, through his body, scattered throughout the world. Then he's going to go even a step farther and he's going to come right into how we then, as God's people, engage those who are not in Christ. Listen to what he writes. He says, Conduct yourselves wisely. That's the older ESV translation. Let me read it with, with the newer one. I don't have Nash the clicker for the... Ah, I should grab that. Let's see if it's on there. Technology. There we go. Okay. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. In these two short verses, Paul is going to give us a foundation on which we can stand firm in how we interact with others. These others, Paul calls outsiders, that you would walk in wisdom towards outsiders, 
These are not, simply non-Christians. They're not followers of Christ. It's the same term that he uses in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, where he tells the church to aspire to live quietly, mind your own affairs, work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may live properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. We want to live properly before non-Christians in how we work and in how we live. And as we pray that the Lord would open doors to declare his word, to make known the mystery of Christ, we want to see it made known clearly. Paul is exhorting the believers in Colossae in how they are to live and how they are to speak before outsiders. So in word and deed, in deed and in word. So we'll just take these two verses and look at them together. So first, really, it's just talking about how do we approach outsiders? How do we approach those who aren't Christians? And it's a heart posture that we want to carry. And so he says simply, walk in wisdom. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders. I recognize very quickly that, that I need this. I too often can engage with people just in the moment, or as I said before, just according to my current mood. So how then do we walk in wisdom towards outsiders? The wording right away draws the reader's attention to really the understanding of the wisdom literature of Scripture, because to walk in wisdom is to walk according to the way of wisdom. And if you've read the Old Testament, you know that that's a very predominant theme, especially in the book of Proverbs. Listen to Proverbs chapter 2, verses 11 through 20. Proverbs 2 says this, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. And so to walk in wisdom is, is to walk the path of wisdom, is to walk the path of righteousness that is dependent on God, the giver of wisdom. Because wisdom doesn't come from us. How many of us have been in those situations where we, we find ourselves engaging with someone and we just, again, we have no idea. What do I say? How do I engage in this, in this moment? How do I? Right? That question comes. And that's a good thing. Because we should be aware immediately as we engage with people that I don't have wisdom in myself. I don't have the ability to interact the right way, the way of wisdom. That wisdom comes from the Lord. And so immediately, 
as we engage, as we're walking with non-believers or or non-Christians, right away we're saying, God, I need you. I need you as I interact with this person. Because Christ is wisdom. And don't miss that. As you walk through Proverbs, wisdom is this shadow of, of, a great, of the great reality of the one who is wisdom. And that is Jesus Christ. And I, I love the texts in 1 Corinthians. Let me just read from verse 24 and verse 30. Listen to what 1 Corinthians says. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then in verse 30, he, Christ, is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And so to walk in the way of wisdom with outsiders is to walk in the way of Christ, not the way of the fool, not the way of the world. And we need, therefore, the one who is wisdom to show us when and how to engage with people or not. And so to walk in wisdom is to engage people from the perspective of the world with Christ at the center. It's living out what Colossians has been revealing before us, that there is no one like Jesus Christ, that he is the image of God, that he holds all things, that all things are for him, that he rules over the universe. It's Christ. It's Christ in our homes. It's Christ in our husbanding, in our wifing, in our kidding. That doesn't quite work, but it does. All right, it's Christ, the wisdom of God. It's his righteousness revealed because it's in Christ that we live these things out. And, you know, Proverbs chapter 2, really, Proverbs are, are given to deliver a person from the way of evil, right? They're, it's protecting. Don't walk the way of evil. Walk the way of life, of righteousness, of wisdom. And in Colossians, and really what the New Testament equips us with, and what God throughout is equipping his people with, is to walk the path of wisdom to engage with outsiders, with those who are not followers of Christ, in a way that points them to the one who is wisdom. It's equipping us in a way to engage people with Christ and for Christ. He wants us to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. And we see this, making the best use of the time. How do we make the best use of the time? The literal translation has sort of a play on words because as, as, as Paul writes this, uh, we could actually read it, walk, walk wisely, right? Conduct yourselves wisely towards outsiders, redeeming the time. If you have an old King James, you'll see that kind of language. And yes, it is making the best use of the time, right? It's not wasting time. It's not just going along with the world and the way that the world perceives time. It's recognizing that there's something greater in, in what God has done as he rules over all situations and all people and as he rules over time itself. It's a word that is used in Galatians 3 and Galatians 4. 
where we read that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Or that God sent his son to redeem those under the law. The idea in Galatians is that we were slaves. We were walking a path of slavery, right? The path of the fool. If we were to use Proverbs language. The path of death. But Christ entered into our sin and our slavery to sin, death, and Satan without sinning himself. And he walked the path of wisdom perfectly. He engaged with foolish people. And he paid the price to set them free and us free from our bondage to sin and slavery. He redeemed. He purchased us, man and men and women and children for God at the cost of his own blood. So here in Colossians 4, as we're walking wisely towards outsiders, redeeming the time. It's not redeeming in the same sense of Galatians. It's a different sense. But the, the idea is still there. Because we don't literally buy back time. We're not purchasing time as Christ purchased us from sin and death and Satan. As Christ paid the price, the, took the punishment that we deserve for sin. It's not the same. But what it does point to is that we are seeing time as something that God has gifted us with for his purposes. We want to walk aware of that. It's similar language to what he wrote in Ephesians 5, verses 15 and 16, when he said, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise. Right? Walk as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Redeeming the time, because the days are evil. And so what's the picture? Brothers and sisters, we live in a world that is captivated by the misuse of time. We use time for what purpose? It's to entertain. It's to walk the path of the fool. It's the path of godlessness. It's for the now. It's the, for the pursuit of my pleasure, my happiness. It trumps all things. It's to be distracted by the coming death that we will all face or distracted by whatever situation that we're in right into the realities of living in the realm and the, the reality of sin that dwells within, reflected in the world and its deeds. The days are evil, but God entered into this world. And that's Advent, right? That's Christ's first coming in the fullness of time. I love that phrase. All building, right? Time, building to the incarnation that he would redeem those under the law. That he would bring us into sonship as sons and daughters of God. And when we image Christ, the Redeemer, we walk in the one who is wisdom. We are his vessels of redeeming. As he redeems men and women and children, as he redeems all things. In fact, if you remember chapter 1 of Colossians, verse 19, it told us, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. As Christ's people, we are those who make use of time that we have been given 
to engage others in a way that makes known the mystery of Christ. We see time redeemed as it is brought under the lordship of Christ who is the Lord of time. Do you see that connection? We're making use of time. We aren't wasters of time. But how much of my life do I forget? Do I get caught in just doing, just going along and forgetting? Just as I forget to engage people wisely, I forget that this moment, this time is a gift from his hand. It is under Christ's rule and he is the Lord of it. And I want to live and reflect that as I engage with outsiders, with non-Christians. And that is what we are called to. We want to redeem the time, making the best use of the time, not wasters, but those who are bringing it into submission to Christ. And how does that happen? It would be amazing to see that these things just happen naturally. That we're often put in situations where as we're mindful, as we just have our eyes open right here in this moment, Christ, what do you have, Lord? How can, how can I walk in awareness that you reign over these moments? Just a few weeks ago, my oldest son went with my dad to go and get a lift chair. Uh, dad, there's a, a woman in, in their body of Christ who's struggling to just get up out of a chair. And dad looked on Facebook Marketplace, found a chair that is a lift chair and bought it from a lady in Cross Lanes. He, he heads over there with, with Elisha. And as they're there, they get the chair, right? We're Americans. We have our task. Get the chair, load it up. Thank you. Here's your money. Off we go. Um, that's typically how we go through our day. Elisha, though, as he was in this, this home, he said, Papa, it was just like there was just something heavy that was there. It's like I couldn't explain it. Uh, even the woman, I couldn't put my finger on it. And then my dad, in that moment, as they loaded up the chair and he was paying her the money, he said, now, now, ma'am, I know that these chairs are, you know, that, that these are often coming in, into, in, into, uh, into your home uh, towards the end of somebody's life. And, and to sell it often is a, means that something sad has happened here. And she just started to cry. You know, he just acknowledged it. And at that moment, Elisha's like, whoa, Right? And he just said to her, can I just give you a hug? <laughs> she said, yeah, I mean, stranger, right? Of course, with my dad, there's no strangers. And he just hugged her, you know, and just, just have an awareness of the moment, just redeeming the time, right? That, that's, that's seen, that's being a vessel of Christ, wherever we are, that he sets up those moments. And I think, how many times I just take the chair and off I go, thank you, right? Um, and yet it comes and says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. and We're given these situations and we're put in them for Christ and by Christ and for his glory. And that's why he says earlier to pray that a door would be open for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. And he answers those prayers. And we walk in it as we engage with non-Christians. And with one another. This leads to our, really our second exhortation. How to speak to outsiders. How do we speak? He says, let your speech always be gracious. 
seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. I would read this often and think, okay, this is talking about like Christian debate. You know, that's how we think. It's just like, okay, you know, I believe this and what do you, and, and, and sometimes that is right. Like we want to know how we should answer. We, we should know how to defend our faith in, in a plethora of situations because we will encounter very complex situations and we need God's wisdom. And that is right in this passage. And yet, look at what Paul says as a part of that. First, simply, let your speech always be gracious. Just let it always be gracious. It could simply mean graciousness, right? Let let your speech be gracious in terms of kindness. After all, God has already told us to put on kindness and humility and meekness and to have patience towards one another in chapter three. And yet while a gracious kindness is a part of this, it's definitely a part of what he calls us to live as opposed to being harsh or impatient or rude. To use gracious speech is to speak as those who have been filled with grace. It's grace reflected speech. It's God's grace reflected in the way that we talk. Say, so what does this mean? All right, well, first, we have to understand and, and remember often that non Christians do not know grace, they don't. Apart from the work of Jesus in our lives, we would never truly know grace. We might catch little images of it here and there, like a a policeman who gives you a warning instead of a ticket, or a debt that has been forgiven, or an undeserved kindness that has been rendered. We see shadows or hints of it, but we would never know the depths of true grace of life-giving, sacrificial grace, unimaginable, that that God himself would come and give his life as a sacrifice for sin and for sinners, unimaginable that God would be born. I'm pointing here because for some reason I'm thinking there's an Advent thing there. Maybe there's not. (laughs) Where is it? Maybe. There it is. I don't know. It's all right. You're like, why is he pointing? Advent, that's why. Um, That he would be born, that he would take on this flesh, that he would walk through this world of brokenness, that he would overcome without sinning, that he would engage people perfectly, wisely, demonstrating all that we are called to demonstrate, that he would die on the cross for us, that he would give his life, that he would conquer death and be raised on the third day where he now reigns at God's right hand with all authority in heaven and on earth. Grace to sinners who are made sons and daughters. You deserve death and so do I, but he lavishes us with grace. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you're lavished with grace? The words of Ephesians 1 always ring out in my ears. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he's lavished on us 
Now, that was just love that word, lavished. All right, you need more? I got it. I'm just going to lavish it. You got enough? No, take more. Here's more. I've got more for you. It's lavished grace. You deserve death, but I offer you life. I give you myself. I give you my righteousness. If we have experienced this incredible grace, the grace of God in Christ, then we will have grace to give to others. We will speak with a gracious speech. If we have not received grace, if we struggle to receive grace, if we reject the grace that is given to us in Christ, we will not know how to answer each person and we will not speak with gracious speech because gracious speech flows from a grace-filled heart. But Paul doesn't stop there. He adds on one more phrase, seasoned with salt. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. This phrase is not necessary. We could just read it, let your speech always be gracious so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And that works, it's enough. And yet he, he brings this phrase for a reason. He's highlighting what he's saying. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Of course, we look at salt a little bit negative, you know, a salty person, a salty response. Uh, P- Peter actually suggested maybe that comes from sailor language, right? It's salt, you're salty, it's negative. Um, I don't know. But in the Old Covenant, in Leviticus 2, God told the people of Israel when they were bringing a grain offering to the Lord that they were to season it with salt. That's in Leviticus 2.13. And this is what God said. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. A bit interesting. On one hand, it's called the salt of the covenant, right? And that signifies something. It signifies the ongoing uh, reality of the covenant. It signifies God uh, as the keeper of the covenant, God's commitment to his people, the salt of the covenant. But on the other hand, right here in Leviticus, I love this, because as the grain offering is offered, you got to salt it. Okay, why? Because part of it is going to be offered to God, and that's great. What a great remembrance of the covenant, right? But the other part of it is actually going to be taken and eaten by someone, the priests. It doesn't have honey in it. It doesn't have leaven in it. I mean, you know, it's going to be very bland, but you're going to put salt on it. Right, because the priests are going to enjoy it and they're going to remember. So don't forget the salt. Right, salt it. It's in the commandment. Did you salt that? Um, God commanded it. Right, and I love it. Here in Colossians, it's easy to just to miss it. Try to overthink. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. What's the salt? What's the salt? Does it signify? Uh, aspects of the covenant, and of, and of course, right? But plain and simply, why do we add salt to something? Make it taste good, right? We're drawing out the goodness of the thing. Salt itself isn't bringing flavor. It's accentuating. It's, it's 
magnifying the flavor that's there, right? It's, it's, it seems like it just accentuates it. It makes it better. So let your speech be seasoned with salt. It's, it's making things better. It's taking the reality of the goodness and it's just making it enjoyable. We have to ask ourselves, does the grace-filled, Christ-dependent speech that I offer to another enhance the beauty of the gospel or detract from it? Paul knows that different situations require different responses. He knows that. That's why we have to walk the way of wisdom before outsiders, right? That's a reality. There are times for strong words. There are times for rebuke and correction, right? Those are there. And yet the foundation again and again, the posture as we engage non-Christians is this. And so we walk it again and again because I need God's wisdom to know how to engage, how to let my speech be seasoned with salt so that I don't waste the time, but that I'm a part of redeeming the time in this moment, confessing Christ, making Christ known. Perhaps the best place that we can go to watch this play out is the master himself. And we know that he had stinging words for religious leaders, especially Pharisees. And as you read through, you recognize that most often the very strong words are for false teachers. One degree or another, it's people who are leading other people astray. Pharisees were false teachers. They were leading people astray. And yet even his stronger words to insiders exposed their hearts and pointed them to the truth, truly seasoned with salt. How did he interact with outsiders. And it's a great study as you walk through the Gospels. Just look at how Jesus interacts with people. But I think it's even more fascinating to watch how he interacts with non-Jews and see his responses. And then as you walk through that, walk through the book of Acts and look at all of the ways that, that people are engaging with non-Christians and, and look at how the Gospels pre- presented. How is speech always gracious, seasoned with salt in, in word and in deed, in truth? And we watch Jesus model this over and over again. I love watch, reading through the, the Gospel of John, John 4, I think we're fairly familiar with that story, but we watch Jesus approach a woman who is an outcast. She is uh, um, a a sinful woman known. She's there at the well at, at noon and, you know, when nobody's at the well and Jesus is there because God had an appointment. She doesn't know this, but this is a moment that's being redeemed. This is redeeming the time, right? Jesus is aware. God has led him. The way he engages her, he has purpose, And of course, he points beyond her her physical need into her spiritual need. You know, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. What? How does he know to speak these words? Well, he is wisdom. He knows. 
He knows what she needs. And he goes beyond just the external and the fruit right into the root, right into the heart. He doesn't get caught up in the controversies. You know, it's easy to get into arguments. You can go there. You know, when I was in Ireland, the easiest way uh, uh, to, to, to stop a conversation with an Irish Catholic was to just simply start preaching, you know, speaking against the, the Catholic Church. It was over. But if you asked an Irish Catholic at that you know, I had a number of conversations. You just said, you know, what do you see wrong with the church? Oh, man, they will tell you. <laughs> right? So if, if you're bringing it, they'll shut down. But if you ask the question, they know very well. These are the problems. All right? And you can start having great conversations. Okay? And, and so Jesus, he, he knows. And, and he bridges right in. He doesn't get caught in the controversy. All right? He, he points her to truth. He's pointing her to something beyond uh, what would be human wisdom. Right? Just her natural thinking into something greater. And then he calls out her sin. Go and call your husband, right? Because he knows this is a broken woman. And we don't think about it often from her perspective. The life that she's lived, all that she has done that has led her to this moment, that the gracious God would sit with her at a well and reveal truth and offer himself. Of course, she she, she can't. She knows her sinfulness because she's not married. Um, the man that, was, that she's with isn't her husband. And we watch Jesus bridge the truth of the gospel into her life. In Matthew 15, Jesus engages with a Canaanite woman she, or the Syrophoenician woman. You know, she, she cries out to Jesus because her daughter's oppressed with a demon. So here's a woman her whole life, she is here within, I guess she's living within Israel. She's going to be mistreated or treated as an outsider, right? She's not uh, an Israelite. She's not Jewish. Uh, and now she has a daughter that is demon-possessed. And she approaches Jesus. Lord, help me. And he doesn't answer her. Earlier in Matthew, Matthew had engaged with the Roman centurion, right? An outsider. And you watch that interaction. This, this interaction is different. And he's quiet. And she uh, continues to, to, to beg, Lord, help, Lord, help. And the disciples are, can we just send her away? And then Jesus says, and you listen to him redeeming the time, right? This is for God and his glory. Jesus has purpose here. He simply says, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Why, why, why call her a dog? Right? Isn't that offensive language? It's gonna put her off and shut her down. It, actually, no. See, in the Old Covenant, Israel was to be a people consecrated to the Lord. And God told them in Exodus 22, Therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. Okay, there's this imagery in the Old Testament that dogs are the animals that dwell outside of the camp. They're outside, not inside. All right? In Uganda, you don't have dogs in your house. That's crazy. Dogs are wild. We kind of fear dogs. In fact, when we had a dog, most Ugandans were afraid. So we'd have to really work hard to bridge that, that relationship of dog and man. Uh, dogs are outsiders. And this Canaanite woman knows. And, and Jesus was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. And he makes that known if you read the parallel passage. I forget where that is located. I think it's in Mark. But he's setting this up. She knows she's an outsider. The disciples know she's an outsider. They know exactly what he means in the language. And what does she say? 
She simply says, yes, Lord. But even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. She recognizes Jesus as the master. And she is before him as an outsider longing for help. Wanting to be brought inside. Content for anything he would give to her. Because he is master. And of course, Jesus marvels at this wondrous faith. He had set this up. He drew out of her what needed to be revealed and he marvels at it before everyone. And they see this foretaste of the gospel going to the nations where outsiders are made insiders. Where dogs are brought to table because that's us. It's the beauty of Matthew 9 as Jesus reclines at table with tax collectors and sinners, right? He engages with sinners intentionally. The Pharisees are offended. He's breaking the law and he points beyond their own pride and their misjudgments to the very heart of the law, which they wielded over people, so eager to hit people upside the head with the law in the wrong way. A way that drove them away from God, didn't draw them to. What did Jesus answer in Matthew 9? Oh. He answered this to the Pharisees. He said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Let me read that again. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Do you get that? We are the physicians to the sick. Right? And a physician can use a knife to cut and cause much harm. Or a physician can be strategic to cut in a way that brings healing to others. And Jesus is the great physician. And he tells them, go and learn what this means. And he doesn't just say it here. He's in, in Matthew, in Matthew 9, he says it again a few chapters later. He actually tells them the same thing twice. Go and learn what this means. I want mercy, not sacrifice. And it points us right back to the book of Hosea, where that comes out of, where that statement comes. And, and what is Hosea? It's the God who pursues the harlot, it's the God who alone can make the harlot into virgin Israel. Because that's who he is and it's what he does. He takes the broken and he binds them up and he makes a new creation. He engages. What does God desire? I desire mercy and not sacrifice. When you go back and you read in the Hebrew, we use mercy to translate it, and mercy is good. But to the, to the listeners of Hosea, he says, I desire hesed, not sacrifice. They were to sacrifice by faith, but it was an outflow of something. They were doing hesed because God had done hesed with them. What is hesed? It is God's steadfast love. It is his covenant faithful love. It is his loyal pursuing love that doesn't stop as he engages with people. He is the pursuing God who does hesed with us. And what does he tell the Pharisees as, as he is there engaging with sinners and tax collectors? Go and learn what this means. I want hesed. 
Live out this steadfast love before sinners and tax collectors. Live out the heart of the gospel, the God who has so loved that he has given. Engage in people's lives so that even if they're rejecting your message, even if they turn against you, it's Christ that they're rejecting, not just you hitting them upside the head. It's easy to throw truth darts, and I've had my times, right? This will get them. (laughs) But how do you engage with people in a way that they know that the truth you're bringing is truly in love for them? Not just to be right, but to love people. That's what Paul is calling us to. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. And that's the seasoning. It's making it beautiful. It's pointing beyond what we see to the greater need. And oh, how I fail again and again. There is no formula here. There is no prescription. It's a foundation. Build on this. So what do we do? Again, I think back to Aunt Audrey and I think, oh Lord, I want to love people so well how far I fall short. The checkout lady at Lowe's or the Christmas tree salesman or whoever, you know, how do I love people? How do I engage them with eyes to redeem the time? How do I speak with gracious speech seasoned with salt that's pointing to to the God of covenant, the God who has poured out his life, and yet how do I bridge this into the life of this person? And and maybe it really is through the the, the beauty of love revealed and and, and a a demonstration of, of care and engagement that is different than other people, but that's ongoing, right? Maybe it's going to the same grocery store. Maybe it's finding the same checkout person. Maybe it's going to the same, you name it, and just building those relationships where you're known and that you treat people differently and look for how you can bridge the gospel into that life. And maybe it is just in that moment, a moment that is there, and you can bridge it and speak Christ. I think one of the most powerful things that we can do as we seek to live this out, as we pray for wisdom, as we engage people, is to simply begin to pray, really like Paul, right, that God would open a door to declare the mystery of Christ. And, and there's a really sweet way to do that. And it's, it's called living outside of ourselves. And it's called actually just engaging people in a way that asks questions about them. How are you today? You know, how many times do we find people in this season where they just, they can look sad? Yeah, I know Christmas can be a hard holiday for someone. Is, is, you know, is, it, uh, is there anything going on? Or, or, or how, you know, can I pray for you? And actually, I think prayer is one of the most powerful tools that God has given us as his people. Because as we engage with people, really, there's three key areas, right? How's your health? You know, oh, my back's really hurting. Oh, I'm not feeling so good today. Maybe, you know, really, it doesn't take much to have someone complain, Right. It's pretty easy if you engage them to get something, all right? Um, health, um, or how's your family? You know, I love bringing my kids places because then as they see my kids, I, yo, do you have kids? You know, and then if I know that, there's a mental note next time. Hey, how are your kids? The guy at the post office, he lost his granny last year, okay? I, I want to talk about, I lost, the, you know, just how can I engage, all right? And so I'm mindful of family. What's going on in your family? Oh, you know, how's your family? Well, my wife, she's, she's not good. 
She's, she's, she's not fine. Or, or how, how's your job? What's going on? Or, or how's just your circumstance? And as you find things that are just brought out, all you have to do is not just say, not, it's easy to say, well, I'll, you know what? I'll be praying for that. That's actually easy and that's not bad. That can be gracious, seasoned with salt. It's loving people. But there's something amazing about saying just these little words. Can I pray for that right now? Can I pray for you? Can I pray for your grandmother? Can I pray? They kind of look at you, right? Like, but they won't say no. They won't. A friend of mine in 20 years has never been turned down by prayer for prayer by a Muslim. A Muslim, seriously, in, in over 20 years, just engaging in those three areas. Can I pray for that? And my friend, once you start to pray, you can pray whatever you want. You know, you're, you're, you're praying into the hearts and lives of people. And the beauty of that is you get to just watch God work. You can't fix circumstances, situations, or any problems, but God can. And as God moves in people's lives, you get to watch and be a part. And you know what? No matter what happens, I guarantee that person will know, wow, they really cared about me. They loved me. That's doing hesed, right? You know how much you've been loved, and you're reflecting it in the lives of others. But we need wisdom, And we want gracious speech seasoned with salt. And we need to know when to speak and when to be quiet. We need that. And we want to trust Christ that we haven't missed, right? We we walk away going, I missed it. I missed it. Fine. Wrestle through it, but submit it to the Lordship of Christ. Lord, you reign. Give me opportunity. Make me mindful. Help me engage with people for the glory of your name so that we might know how We ought to answer each person. We want to go and learn what this means together because you are the salt of the earth and Christmas is a great time to just engage people with the truth and hope of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, would you take your word and drive it deep into our hearts. Lord, you know how much I or we can fear man, not fear you, not be motivated by the truth of what you've poured out to us and the truth that you are at work in in all of our situations and circumstances. And, And Lord, that we get to walk free as your children. Uh, Lord, you give us that, to walk free. So may we be vessels of, of your mercy to others, of your steadfast love. Lord, would you work through this body uh, as we engage with those that you've put into our lives? Some here, we've got tough people in, in, in jobs, situations. Lord, you know. You know those of us who have hard, hard bosses. You know those of us who, who have uh, hard coworkers or, or, or just very difficult family members. Just You know. And so, Lord, would you give us wisdom uh, to pray and, and to know when and what to speak and how to engage, Lord, with those that you've put into our, our paths. And would you do a great work in our midst uh, over this, this season as we look to you together? Um, thank you for Jesus. Lord, thank you that, that in our sin, you didn't reject us, that you pursued us so patiently. Thank you, Lord, that you gave your life Thank you that you took our sin 
and gave us your righteousness. Oh God, let us be true salt in the lives of each other and others for the glory of your name. Amen.